Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. I'll begin reading at verse 3, however, uh, to remind us of uh, the, the near context of this passage. So Philippians 1, 9 to 11 is our sermon passage. I'll start reading at verse 3. Within our scripture reading, uh, which I'll read prior to the sermon passage, comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. It's just one book back, uh, toward the, the back of your Bibles, uh, the book of Colossians. And this passage in Colossians is a, is a parallel passage to our passage in Philippians, but it uh, fleshes things out a little more, and therefore I believe it will be beneficial for us to, uh, to read it uh, in conjunction with Philippians 1, 9 to 11. So we'll begin with Colossians 1, 9 to 14, and then we'll flip a few pages toward the fronts of our Bibles to uh, Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Give ear unto it. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now turning, if you will, to Philippians 1. We'll begin at verse 3 and read through verse 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, dear Lord. We thank you for the prayers of the Apostle Paul, for those churches to whom he ministered. We thank you, dear Lord, for his prayers that were prayed for us. We thank you that he prayed locally, but also globally. That he prayed for the church in his present day, but also the church in days future to him. But we thank you for... This portion of your word it contains this brief prayer. And we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray that you would indeed use it as a means of grace, a way, dear Lord, by which you give grace to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, O oh Father, that by your spirit you would bless the preaching of the word and that you would bless the hearing of it as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, earlier in 
chapter 1. In verses 3 and 4, which we uh, covered several weeks back, Paul told the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He prays for them regularly, he says. He prays with joy for them. And he told them that the reason that he prayed for them with such joy in verse 5 is because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day, that is that very first day when he ministered to them, until now. Until this point, some 12 to 13 years later when he's writing this letter to the Philippians. You'll remember that the Philippians, the, the converts in Philippi, Lydia and the Philippian jailer, they were the first converts to Christianity on European soil. But they also partnered very quickly with the Apostle Paul as he went out from Philippi to other places, Thessalonica, to, to Greece, and to various other places. They supported his ministry. They prayed for him. They, they sent him uh, uh, financial assistance. And now, beginning in verse 9, Paul gives them the content of his prayers, at least part of it. He tells us, he tells the Philippians and, and, and us by extension, what it is that he prays for the Philippian saints. These prayers that he so regularly offers up to God on their behalf. And the first element of his prayer for them is found in verses uh, 9 through the first half of verse 10. Now it should be noted that Paul has great confidence in God's response to his prayers. He knows that his prayers are not in vain. He knows that the Holy Spirit will bear fruit in the lives of the Philippian believers. He is praying in accordance with what God has promised. He's not going out on a limb here in what he prays for uh, the Philippian believers. Paul has shown his gratitude for what the Philippians have done for him in providing financial support for him as well as for providing uh, fellowship and encouragement. Remember, they sent Epaphroditus to him in his imprisonment. And he tells them what he does for them, regularly praying for them. And he tells them what his prayers for them consist of. Now, Paul isn't making reference to some kind of a quid pro quo agreement, a uh, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours type of agreement. He's not saying, wow, you gave me money. Well, I'll pray for you. That's not what he's saying. His telling the Philippian church how regularly he prays for them serves to show how valuable he believes prayer to be. He puts his prayers for the Philippians on equal footing with their financial support for him. You gave to me, he says. I'm giving to you by praying to the Lord on your behalf. And that should tell you at least something about the true value of your prayers for other people. Especially now in our culture, the wider culture, which is mocking and deriding the prayers of God's people for those who are in crisis, right? You hear it all the time. Your thoughts and prayers, they're not enough. Well, thoughts, okay, we can give them that. But prayers, no, prayers are of great value. Paul understands that. Prayers are important. Our society may think that prayers are meaningless and worthy of mockery, but Paul doesn't, and so neither should we. But Paul tells the Philippians in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. As verse 9, coupled with verse 4, indicates, this is the standard content in Paul's prayers for them. Now, that doesn't mean that this is the only content of Paul's prayers for them, but he's, he's telling them what he regularly 
how he regularly prays for them, what he regularly prays for when he prays for the Philippians. But looking at the other letters that Paul wrote, we can see that, that he has similar content in his prayers for other churches as well. In Colossians 1.9, we read this uh, just a few moments ago. Paul writes there, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There, again, Paul is praying as he does for the Philippians, praying for knowledge for the Colossian church. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, wisdom, knowledge, revelation. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. These are just a few examples of, of the types of prayers that Paul prays for the various churches with which he's involved. And the repeated themes of Paul's prayers for the Philippians as well as the other churches to which he ministered were that they should abound in love, that they would grow in knowledge, that they would grow in wisdom and in discernment. And the repetition of these things, both for the Philippians as well as for the other churches to whom Paul wrote, shows how important it was to Paul that these churches did abound in these things. But what specifically are these things in which Paul wants them to abound? Well, the first thing he says he wants the Philippian church uh, to abound in is love, which is the translation of the Greek word agape. Now, that's that, that's. Perhaps one of the Greek words you're familiar with. Um, most people know that one of the words for love is agape. You probably are aware of some of the other uh, Greek words uh, for love. One commentator writes, the noun agape is not found in pre-biblical Greek. Generally speaking, it is a selective love rather than an impulse. It is a freely willed act toward another. It is most often used of God's love. Not exclusively of God's love, but most often. And what does it mean that it's not found in pre-biblical Greek literature? Well, it's found in the Septuagint, which was written a few hundred years before the New Testament. It's the, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek version of the Old Testament. So it's found there, but it's not found prior to that. God is, after all, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as David writes in Psalm 145, which is at the top of your bulletins. Paul wants the Philippian church to abound in the same love for God and for each other that God has for them. But that raises the question, sort of uh, implied it, but it raises the question, who is the object of the love in which, God, in which Paul wants the Philippians to abound? Who is supposed to receive this abounding love, in other words? Well, the object of the love that they ought to abound in is not named in this passage. Which probably means that when Paul prays for the Philippians, he wants their love to abound for God, for each other, for other believers, and for the lost. In other words, he wants them to have abounding love for, for everyone, first and foremost to God, and then to everyone else. But... Paul may leave the object of the love he wants them to have unspecified, but that does not mean that he doesn't want them to apply it specifically. He's just leaving it up to them to figure it out. But he does give them direction. 
You see, Paul is concerned about a rift that has opened up, that has, uh, has arisen among them in the church at Philippi. He's heard about disunity among them. He writes in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, of course, in the verses that follow, Paul launches into one of the most beautiful hymns, one of the most beautiful sections on the humility of the Son of God that is found anywhere in Scripture. But the point is that he's trying to help the Philippian church through a patch of a rough patch of disunity. And, and he further uh, illuminates this in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul regards these people as true believers, these women, Euodia and Syntyche, he regards them as true believers and yet something has happened with them. And Paul sees it as being dangerous to the church. He's concerned. Paul has lived through the rift that took place in the Corinthian church. And he does not want to see it in this church that he established in Philippi. Paul wants these women, along with the whole church at Philippi, to be of the same mind. He wants their love to abound still more and more. Now, this word that's translated abound, it can also mean overflow. It can mean superfluous, which is probably a fancy way of saying overflow. The word is used in the New Testament 39 times. 26 of the times that it's used in the New Testament, it's used by Paul in his letters. This is... This word is a favorite of Paul's. He loves this word, to abound. Paul wants their love to abound still more and more. Now, you notice I threw in a word there, still. The, the ESV, for whatever reason, does not translate the word for still in, that's there in the original. Unlike the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard, which do translate the word. And this little word still, or perhaps yet, it could be translated, it's important Without the word there, it might be inferred that Paul is saying that they have no love, that they're a loveless church, and that they need to get some love and they need to abound in it. But with the word there, still, Paul is urging them, uh, urging yet more and more love from them. They have love, he wants them to have more love. And the more and more in verse 9 shows that they are always to be abounding, overflowing in love. But Paul also adds some description to this love that they ought to have. He says that their love should abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, according to Paul there at the end of verse 9. Now, we sometimes think of head knowledge and heart knowledge, right? We, we distinguish between the two. We we act logically and we act according to our emotions. And those, team, those two things are separate and, and are never joined. That's not the way that Paul thinks about it here. Love is not, uh, not the sole domain of the heart. 
Paul is saying that their love should be expressed with knowledge and discernment. The more we know about God, the more we love Him and others. But also, the more we love God, the more we want to know about Him. Isn't that the case? When you love a person, you want to learn more and more about them. And with God, it's the same. Now, the words translated knowledge and discernment seem to encompass the theoretical and experiential aspects of knowledge. Sort of the the conceptual on the one hand, and the, the getting out there and getting your hands dirty on the other. That's uh, the way these words are distinguished. They have a similar uh, 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 range of meaning. They have overlapping ranges of meaning, but the distinctives are one is sort of the theoretical, uh, the conceptual, the classroom knowledge. The other is uh, the applied uh, knowledge, what you get when you get out there in the field. And Paul writes in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, their growth in knowledge and in discernment is for the purpose of approving what is excellent or what is best. Now, this word that's translated approve, it's used in the Greek Old Testament and in the New Testament generally to mean test, as in testing coins to make sure that they are authentic. And so the Philippians are to test, they are to approve, they are to discern what is excellent so that through the love in which they are abounding, they can discern the things that really matter and choose the best course of action in any and every situation. It it was very common, you you who are uh, older than 10 years of age, uh, you remember all the time the bracelets with WWJD, what would Jesus do? And that's a, that's a good question as far as it goes. But if you don't know what Jesus knows, if you don't know what Jesus has taught, if you don't understand the mind of God as it is revealed to you in Scripture, then you have no idea what it is that Jesus would do or what Jesus would have you do. And so often people would use the, the question, what would Jesus do, to, to come up with their own answer based on what they think they know about Christ. Now, Paul is going to move into a section on ethics later in chapter 1, toward the end of chapter 1, and, and he'll continue in that through chapter 2, verse 18. But he hints at it here. The Philippians' love for God and one another with knowledge and discernment will enable them to know what is best, what is right, what is good and true and lovely. So that was the first element in Paul's prayer for the Philippians. The second element in Paul's prayer for the Philippians, it's found in the second half of verse 10 through verse 11. The second half of verse 10 says this, so, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Be pure and blameless. The word for pure means unmixed, without alloy. Paul means the word pure in a moral sense, not a metallurgical sense. And so he wants the Philippians to be sincere. He wants them to be unhypocritical. He wants them to be without hidden motives or pretense. He wants them to be through and through who they are or who they purport to be on the surface. The word translated blameless is used only two other times in the New Testament. Once it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, and once in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, we read, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And the word that is translated in our passage as blameless is translated there in 1 Corinthians 10.32 as offense. So it means to cause someone to stumble there, in a sense. 
In Acts chapter 24, 16, Paul, who is speaking there before Felix at Caesarea, says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And the word that's translated in our passage, blameless, is translated there as clear in this verse. In Acts 24, Paul is saying that he has a clear conscience, meaning that he has not caused anyone else to stumble. And so he can stand before God and man. As he stands there before Felix, he's getting ready to make his appeal to go to Rome, to to, to have an audience with Caesar. And he says, I have a clear conscience. I've not caused anyone to stumble. And what Paul is wanting for the Philippians, he's wanting them to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment with a clear conscience. He wants them to be free of having caused others to stumble. And he wants them to be free of having stumbled themselves. And as he says in verse 11, Paul Paul wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. He wants them to be filled with fruit. He wants them to bear fruit. He's already said that he wants the Philippians to be abounding more and more in love. And now he wants them to be overflowing with the fruit of righteousness. The words abounding and filled, they're different, but they have similar ideas. He wants them to bear fruit. We might add, even though Paul doesn't explicitly state it here, that he wants them to bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's a regular theme in Paul's letters. What he does say explicitly is that this fruit comes through Jesus Christ. It comes as a result of having faith in Jesus Christ. And its purpose is for God to be glorified and praised. And so that's the end result of the prayer that he offers up for the Philippians. He wants their love to abound more and more. He wants it to abound with knowledge and discernment. He wants them them to, to do all of these things and to grow so that they might glorify and praise God. But this phrase in verse 11, to the glory and praise of God, it doesn't just come as a result of Christians being filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's not so much as a result. It is a climax of the prayer. It's what he wants them to, to end up doing even more than they already are. Paul expects that all of the things for which he has prayed for the Philippians will result in the glorification and the praise of God. Their abounding love with knowledge and all discernment, their approval of what is excellent, their being pure and blameless for the day of Christ, their being filled with the fruit of righteousness, all of these things result in glory and praise of God. The chief end, as we might say in catechetical language. If the Philippian church engages in self-forgetting love and a self-denying life, they will bring glory and praise to God. But none of this can happen if it is not through Jesus Christ. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that the Christian brings glory and praise to God's holy name. The unbeliever will glorify God only in his or her condemnation. The unbeliever does not bring glory to God through his life. He brings glory to God when God judges him. The believer, by virtue of having been declared righteous, will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The believer, 
Because he has been set free from enslavement to sin. Because his sins have been washed clean by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Because he has had the perfect righteousness of Christ counted as his own righteousness. Can now walk in righteousness. Can now bear the fruit of righteousness. So the prayers of Paul for the church, they're not in vain. The prayers of Paul for the church are based upon the reality that the Spirit of God is at work, bearing fruit in the lives of the believers. So Paul can pray with great confidence. He knows what the end is going to be. He knows with certainty that if these people truly believe, they will bear fruit. They will abound in love. He trusts in this. Because it is the promise of God for his church. He trusts in this because he knows that this is what God will do in his church and through his church. Well, brothers and sisters, the prayer of Paul for the church at Philippi is no different than the prayer of Paul for you. It doesn't mean that he's up in heaven interceding for you at this point, it means that his prayer still stands. Paul's prayer could be a universal prayer for Christ Jesus' church. It stands for us as well today. God calls us to abound in love with knowledge and discernment. He calls us to bear the fruit of righteousness. And you can bear fruit. You will bear fruit if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because His Holy Spirit is working in you even now. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, dear Lord, that your Spirit causes us to bear fruit. We thank you, dear Lord, for the prayers of the Apostle Paul offered up to the Philippian church. We thank you for the intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ as he offers up prayers for his church. We pray, dear Lord, that Paul's prayer might apply to us. That we too might abound more and more in love with knowledge and all right and, and all discernment. That we might approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that it is all to the end to the goal of the praise and the glory of your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.